0: A data warehouse serves the purpose of providing low-latency queries for high volumes of data. A data warehouse is often part of a data pipeline, which moves data through different areas of infrastructure in order to build applications such as machine learning models, dashboards, and reports. Modern data pipelines are often associated with the term ELT, which is an acronym for Extract, Load, Transform. In the ELT workflow, Data is taken out of a source, such as a data lake, loaded into a data warehouse, and then transformed within the data warehouse to create materialized views on that data. Data warehouse queries are usually written in SQL, and for the last 50 years, SQL has been the primary language for executing these kinds of queries. DBT is a system for data modeling that allows a user to write queries involving a mix of SQL and a templating language called Jinja. Jinja allows the analyst to blend imperative code along with the declarative SQL. Tristan Handy is the CEO of Fishtown Analytics, the company that created DBT, and Tristan joins the show to discuss how DBT works and the role that it plays in modern data infrastructure. Tristan Handy, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks so much. What is the role of the data warehouse in modern software engineering?
1: Oh, gosh. So I think that the data warehouse used to be kind of the more boring place for computation workloads to to happen in data engineering. You know, all the exciting stuff was happening in MapReduce, in Spark. As the data warehouse has become more performant, is beginning to, I think, take over more of those workloads. And I think that you're seeing a lot of that transition from the prior computing architectures. Not to say that Spark is prior, but I think that a lot of people are finding that SQL plus the data warehouse can actually accomplish significantly more than they realized. And they can use it with greater efficiency. Like It's it's easier to operate and larger numbers of their internal stakeholders are able to be first-class citizens in that infrastructure. It
0: seems like we went from a time where people were figuring out how to work with Storm or Spark Streaming or Flink or Patchy Beam or name your distributed stream processing framework yep. as the source of analytics to a time where we stand today where I don't think people would have anticipated this, but basically the role those stream processing frameworks play is to prep the data for the data warehouse. And all the real nitty gritty large scale data analytics takes place in the data warehouse or in Apache Spark, which some people might consider data warehouse. You think that's true?
1: So I want to give a caveat that I, while being certainly adjacent to the stream processing layer, I am not myself a software engineer. And so I have literally never written a streaming job in my life. The thing that I'll say is that I think that there's a lot of evolution when it comes to the necessary SLAs for different use cases for data. I think that for a long time, it was batch-based in 24 hours, and like that was just kind of what you expected. And then when people wanted to do more near real time use cases we kind of overcorrected a little bit we were like well it must be in under 5 seconds and it turns out that there's a tremendous amount of engineering effort even with great frameworks to deliver that type of latency and if you relax the constraint a little bit to say well i want my data to be you know within 5 minutes you can start using data warehouses to accomplish those use cases. So it's really about finding that sweet spot of like, what level of latency do I really need? And what's the trade-off I'm willing to make for that?
0: We can talk more about different tools later on, but focusing back on the data warehouse, there are steps in a data workflow before the data gets into the data warehouse. And then there's the work that actually takes place within the data warehouse. Can you give an overview of those two separate parts of a data workflow, kind of the maybe preparatory or ingestion step of data engineering versus the actual data warehousing process of data engineering?
1: Yeah. So, and I, and I think that this is something that's changing very much in real time. There is this kind of scaling problem associated with data ingestion, the number of different data sources that your company might want to get data from is growing faster than the data engineering resources of a company will ever grow. And as such, there have to be ways of reducing that scaling problem to something that's a little more linear, which is where a lot of the ingestion tooling is coming into play. So companies like Stitch and Fivetran are off-the-shelf solutions that may not cover 100% of the surface area, but they help you uh, cover the big majority of the use cases and just literally get the data in in whatever shape it presents itself in the source. That is a big change from how ingestion used to happen. It used to happen into an intermediate environment, which then the data preparation would would be run, and then the data would be loaded into the warehouse after the fact. Right now, the focus for ingestion is shifting to load the data in in whatever shape it presents itself in the source. And then the transformation workloads happen inside the warehouse. And that's why you know, I'm happy to talk as much or as little about DBT, which is the project that I spend my time working on. But that's why there is an opportunity there, because we're seeing that shift from ETL to ELT.
0: This shift from ETL to ELT, you put it eloquently, My understanding is that it's driven by, at least in part, by the desire to give maximal control or maximal autonomy to the end user of that data warehouse. So rather than saying, we're going to do ETL, we're going to extract the data from the source or ingest the data from the source, we're going to transform it into the normalized table schema that prepares it for the data warehouse, and then we're going to give it to the dashboard or the BI user to directly query. Now we're saying, look, we're going to extract it, we're going to throw it in the data warehouse, and you can build whatever materialized views on top of that somewhat perhaps messy data as you want. Or, you know, in the kind of ETLT kind of idea, it's like, okay, we're going to do a little bit of transformation, we're going to clean it up, and then we're going to prepare it for the data warehouse, but you're still going to be able to define schemas and materialized views within the data warehouse.
1: So I I agree that the main goal is to get this into more people's hands. The real unlock is the capability and the reduction in cost associated with doing compute inside the data warehouse. You literally couldn't throw billions of events into a warehouse in 2010 and just like say, hey, users, Like, have fun. But you can do that now. You can make an argument that like, there are lower cost options there. It probably is cheaper to do what Pinterest does and run a massive Presto cluster as opposed to trying to process that scale of data on one of the commercial data warehouses today. But I think that for most companies, the scale of data that they're operating at is not Pinterest level scale. And so the assumption of just like, throw it all into the warehouse and let everybody have at it actually works out very nicely for a large majority of of companies, even their event data, which, you know, as long as you're talking about, you know, I would say, I would use the word reasonable scale data, like, and that is like, you know, anything where you're talking about terabytes and not petabytes, then you don't necessarily have to Think too hard about those kinds of choices, I think, today.
0: The data analyst who is using the data warehouse, what are the biggest frustrations of that data analyst?
1: I think that, so I started my career out as a data analyst, and if somebody asks me what I do today, that's, I think, how I still self identify 20 years later. I have a chip on my shoulder from 20 years of essentially being underestimated. I think that. Tools that have been built for data analysts don't enable data analysts to have the same kind of impact in their organizations as software engineers have in their organizations. They cost more, so data analysts don't get to choose their own tooling. They historically are not open source, so analysts can't like submit a PR to like implement a new feature. They don't enable scale in that like there's really like a tremendous amount of copy-paste associated with the historical data analyst workflow. And so if you want to think about pain points of a data analyst, like the pain point is that like, the career path sucks. And it's because you can build the core set of skills you need to be a proficient data analyst in the old model. You can build them over the course of six months to three years, And then because the workflow sucks, there's not a great way to like grow in that role over time. Whereas a software engineer can become a better software engineer for 20 to 40 years and continue expecting to get commensurate pay raises, you know, very much so on an IC track. The data analyst needs to figure out what the next step in their career is. Are you going to go into management? Are you going to become a data scientist or a data engineer? There's this assumption that like, you have to do something else because like, the workflow won't let you scale yourself. And so the, you know, what's the main pain point? The main pain point is like I want to be able to continue getting better at what I do and have more and more impact as, as I grow. I
0: love that answer. It's very abstract. <laughs> Do you have any more like yeah, sure. specific things? I mean, I love the existential nature of that yeah, of yeah, that yeah. answer. But like, what about like writing my queries? What sucks about that?
1: Yeah. So if you want to get really tactical, it depends on how like long ago you want to compare to like what people are, are doing now. The, you know, I think that you could talk about reproducibility. And because, you know, 10 years ago, the job of a data analyst was to like recreate the same report as last month and put new data into it. And so we kind of like solved that problem with the modern BI stack circa 2014, 2015, you know, looker mode, et cetera, do a nice job of saying like, you hit the run button and the report gets produced. And so the data analyst doesn't need to like update the reports from last month. So great. We kind of solved that problem. The thing that like the industry is in the process of solving now is more of the like provenance problem. Where does the data come from? Where is it going? How do I prove that it is correct? And then that's when you start having to really think about this problem as a software engineering problem, because software engineers have had to prove that their systems work for as long as there have been systems. You need to start thinking about code quality as opposed to just like can I get this thing to work once? It's how do I ensure that it will continue to work indefinitely? Modularity, really like that is what we spend all of our time thinking about. We're trying to help data analysts apply software engineering best practices to their work. And, you know, our community loves the stuff that we're doing, but it's, it's funny that we as product people don't really have novel ideas. We are literally in the business of like stealing from software engineering practices and thinking, how do I adapt this to the world of the data analyst? And when we think about like, okay, what's our product roadmap for the next year, next two years, the question is like, well, what practices from software engineering are not currently being employed by data analysts? And how do we port them over? There's certainly a list of those that are starting, but not in no way like maturely being handled by data analysts.
0: Let's dig in.
1: Testing, automated testing is a thing that software engineers. I don't know. You you probably know the answer to this better than I do, but I think it's been a big focus for at least a decade and maybe two. Is that is that right? Testing, automated testing. Yeah. When was like, never been test- a
0: focus for me.
1: <laughs> when <laughs> when was test driven development a thing? So I
0: mean, I have my own like existential anxieties about. Test-driven development. How long it's been a thing? I mean, there was a class I took in college that was literally called software engineering. And I remember day one, we get the extreme programming book Mm. from Kent Beck wrote, I think it's all about testing. Write your tests before you write your code. And then like every single job I got out of school, involved writing reams and reams of unit tests. So I I would assume it came at least five to ten years before I entered industry. So
1: somewhere around 2000? Yeah, I think it was in the early 2000s or somewhere about then. But my point is that software engineers have been doing this for a little while, and you really, once a system gets complex enough, like, human testers are not a good scalable way to, like, assert its ongoing quality. For sure. And so we are in the process of... Spreading that gospel in the data analyst world, DBT provides capabilities of doing testing. I wouldn't say that they're like where we want them to be eventually, but it is a good first step. And it's really just like such a simple proposition. Just like run SQL queries against your data to like make sure that it conforms to your expectations. And then you realize that like in many cases, it was wrong, your expectations were wrong and you just previously had not thought to like instruct a system on how to validate them. So that's one thing. CICD is another big thing that we're like in process of now. Um, we've done some work on that front, and there's, again, a lot more work to be done. I think that sometimes the way that you have to adapt problems or workflows from software engineering to the data analyst world is that you have to be a little bit more opinionated. I think that data analysts don't necessarily want to sit there and like build deployment pipelines from scratch they want a common set of best practices ways that like CI/CD should work and maybe that will change over time but there are increasingly mature tools in the software engineering space and folks like GitHub and GitLab are like really pushing this pretty hard we are nowhere near that, but literally just the ability to like take code and automatically deploy it such that your analytics code is always being built off of master. Like that's a surprisingly new idea. And we're just now like starting to see people doing that stuff.
0: Agreed. Yeah. You know, for all I can reflect on times doing unit testing and not enjoying it, I recognize its importance and I recognize the impact a lack of consistent testing has on the data engineering environment where it feels kind of loosey-goosey, where it's like, yeah, we got a machine learning model, it works 90% of the time, you know, and we're okay with that. We want these things working more reliably.
1: I think it's just, I mean, outside of the fact that it produces negative business outcomes, it's also a big drag on the time of the data team, because you spend a tremendous amount of time fielding inbound tickets from your users who are saying, like, this freaking thing is broken. Like, what is going on? And the debug process on all of those types of problems takes a long time. And... It's better just to not have to deal with that in the first place. Like be alerted when there are problems, you know, don't need to go through the communication process with the user, just fix it and make sure that you know, you're within your SLAs with your user population.
0: The data analyst is using SQL for their queries primarily. Hmm? Are there any shortcomings with SQL as a language?
1: No, oh, I love that question. I think that It depends on how you define a shortcoming and what you expect SQL to do for you. I think that in terms of data prep and descriptive statistics, I have not found a problem in the past four years that SQL couldn't solve for me. SQL does not attempt to, well, you know, Google is trying to do some stuff in this area with, with BigQuery, but by and large, ANSI SQL is not attempting to do predictive statistics or machine learning or anything like that. And so if you like understand SQL to be data transformation and descriptive statistics, the current version of ANSI SQL does a really fantastic job. Window functions have grown in their sophistication like very significantly in the last 10 years. And it really is... The increase in uh, functionality from the window function spec, as well as the implementation of that spec by the main data warehouses that allows you to make the kind of investment in SQL as a platform that organizations are making today. When I was a data analyst prior to 2010, it wasn't just that data warehouses couldn't process the volumes of data that they do today, it was that like SQL had things that it couldn't do. You know, one of the my favorite examples of like things that you wouldn't expect SQL to be able to do that it can is like T V advertising attribution, which involves calculating a standard deviation in a trailing window over minutes of activity on a website. And you then have to do some fairly sophisticated looking at like, okay, this was two standard deviations above the norm, therefore we are defining that as a quote unquote spike likely caused by a TV ad. And then you can define how long that spike is. This is all like stuff that, you know, not so long ago, that was not possible. Standard deviation window function, including a rolling window is like a fairly new thing to be supported in the major data warehouses. And without that, you literally just couldn't do that analysis. And now you you can. So yeah, you shouldn't be thinking about training a machine learning model in SQL. Like That's not what it's for. But you can essentially express any type of workload you want as long as you like, understand what it's supposed to be doing for you. The other part, I think that what you're getting to with that question is like SQL is declarative. And so you end up, there can be a lot of copy-paste. You can't decompose things in the way that you might want. And those same things are true of HTML. HTML is a declarative language, As a result, you tend to, as a software engineer, not write HTML. You have abstractions on top of HTML that allow you to output HTML at the end of whatever pipeline you're working in. And so I often think that SQL is not the right programming abstraction for data, but it's the right abstraction to actually be asking a question to the data warehouse. And so the question then is like, and, and this is what we spend all of our time thinking about with DBT, DBT provides templating on top of SQL. And so we are essentially, you know, building the, the Rails layer to use like a very simplistic example on top of HTML so that, you know, analysts can express their logic at the appropriate level of abstraction.
0: Right. For people coming from a front-end world, you know, I remember writing my first Rails application Mm -hmm. and there is that place where you write, I can't remember what the domain-specific language in Rails, Ruby on Rails is. ERB. ERB, right? So ERB, you know, you write, uh, there's a templating language and you can write imperative logic, you know, for loops and if statements Mm -hmm. and stuff in HTML and it's I, you know, this was early on in my web development education, it was totally liberating. Mm-hmm. and I started throwing all kinds of stuff in there. You know, more recently, I think of an example like JSX, which is I don't know if you've seen that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so like React, which is a front end JavaScript framework yep. mixes HTML and JavaScript in this weird file format. It was weird. Now it's not so weird. But The point here is that there's an advantage to a mix of declarative and Mm -hmm. imperative language. And this extends to our data operations. Can you give a a few examples of why imperative and declarative code mixed together is useful for a data analyst writing SQL queries?
1: Yeah, so I think... The declarative, and by
0: the way, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but for yeah. people who don't know the imperative versus declarative thing, so like declarative would be like SQL or HTML, where you're just saying like this is what's going on, go. Versus, I'm not saying go lang, I'm just saying this is what's going on. I, it's not easy to explain imperative versus declarative, but imperative <laughs> is like for loops and if statements and control logic as uh-huh. opposed to just a statement about what is going on. But yeah, based you know probably the most easily on example HTML and SQL. Our declarative, yep. imperative would be like JavaScript, Java.
1: The with a declarative language, you're describing the result you want, and with an imperative language, you're describing what you want the computer to do. And the magic thing that any database does is that it has an optimizer. And the optimizer takes your declarative statement about what result you want and it maps that onto the most efficient set of operations to achieve that desired output. The optimizer is one of the main reasons why it is both more accessible for a data analyst to program in SQL versus a like very experienced data engineer to express, you know, some logic in scalding. You don't actually have to think about how to go about processing the data. You are only saying like I would like my eventual data to look like this. That ends up like making it take less time to write the query, as well as it opens the, the like query writing process up to a larger set of users. So, oh, Here's a use case of like why you might want them co- to go back to your original question. Sure, like yeah. Why might you want to combine them together? Imagine that you've got, it's very common to load event data into a data warehouse and have one table per event type. And yet those tables often have much the same data loaded into them. And sometimes you want to union data together from many of those tables. So let's say that you've got 30 different events. You want to build one event table that has the data from, or some subset of the columns from all of those tables union together. So if you were going to write that union statement by hand in SQL, that would both be very time-consuming and fragile. You'd have to write, you know, hundreds or potentially thousands of lines of code to, like, get all of that data normalized together. Using dbt, you can express that logic as, like, a call to a union function and passing in a, a list of the tables that you want to union together. And dbt then goes and introspects the schema of all of those tables and constructs an appropriate union statement. And you can accomplish the whole thing in, you know, 35 lines of code.
0: Contrast the experience of a data analyst working with raw SQL versus the experience of a data analyst working with DBT.
1: Mm. So when you're working with raw SQL, you end up hitting copy paste a lot because you know, there's it's natural to have logic that ends up wanting to be used in multiple places. And so you have this little library on your hard drive typically of SQL statements that you've written in the past. And they're called things like monthly recurring revenue to underscore final underscore final. And you like, remember that it's there. And when you need it in the future, like you go there and copy paste some chunk of that into the like the new thing that you're doing. And that is, you know, a thing that many software engineers have done in like the, the very beginnings of their careers, and then, you know, had that burn them, and realize that like, there's a real way of, of doing this thing. But data analysts writing SQL without DBT kind of are never able to progress beyond that because SQL itself doesn't give you tools to create functions or create any kind of reusability whatsoever. So you really do need a framework sitting on top of SQL if you are going to think about it as like a first-class language that you are involved in writing.
0: Why can't we just version control our SQL files?
1: That's a part of it. Like Instead of having that folder on your computer be just local to you, it can be a folder that's shared across your team. But that doesn't help you with the reusability part. The core problem is not really that like, people aren't checking their SQL into Git. It is that there is no abstraction present in SQL such that if you want to define something once and use it many places, you can do that. So, you know, you asked, what's the experience like? The other part of the experience is not just like the creation part where you're like going and finding old scripts and copy pasting stuff together. It's also the maintenance part, which is eventually the the bigger problem. Because when you have that copy paste workflow, if somebody says, well, our accountants say that we have to define monthly recurring revenue slightly differently because... I think it's called like ASC six oh six, which is a new accounting standard, and like we, we have to do our revenue recognition differently than we did last year. It's a freaking nightmare. Like you have to go to every single place that you've ever written a script that defines revenue and you have to redefine it. And then your pull requests to that Git repo that contain all of this stuff, like literally like many thousands of lines long. And no one wants to review that pull request because it's incredibly boring. SQL-only <laughs> like, pull requests are so low leverage that like you literally can't get anyone to pay attention to them.
0: One simple but clarifying example for me when I was looking at dbt was the setting of environment variables. Mm. And just saying, I have this line of code in my dbt pre-compiled, eventually will become SQL information, and it says if the environment is testing do one thing if the environment is production do another thing mm. just the simple fact that you can have an environment variable mm. templated in dbt is that a good example of the productivity that you get out of dbt
1: yeah certainly like that's one of it's like such a stupid thing right like and by the way is there a way to do that in sql can you just like pull mm, from an environment variable no Okay. No. I mean, there's no such thing as a variable. Right. I mean, there's like proprietary scripting type SQL, like T-SQL or PL-SQL or stuff like that. But like, that's not a first class thing that's supported consistently across databases. You know, it's again, back to my like, we have seen a lot of traction with DBT. And yet, like, we didn't invent any of these ideas. Terraform was just becoming really popular when we wrote the first line of code for dbt and it was just like oh obviously we need Terraform for data and those the ideas that Terraform popularized which like, again I'm not a Terraform user so like, I understand the ideas behind the product but can't talk about it in detail but just the idempotence where like every time you run the thing you can be confident that you're achieving the same output. The fact that you like Environments are a first-class thing. You should be able to, like, build the same thing across multiple different environments. Like, it was very easy for us to build in environment awareness into DBT because it just seems so obvious that, like, that's how the thing should work. But in most tooling for data analysts, like, the concept of environments doesn't exist. If you want multiple environments, you, like, spin up multiple versions of whatever the thing is that you're using, which is, like very silly. Environments are really just namespaces in DBT. You just like say build it into this environment versus this environment. And because the data warehouse is this like infinitely scalable compute resource, you know, namespaces is good enough.
0: DBT is used to build and test data models. What is a data model?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a fair question. That's such an overloaded term that it it's everything and nothing the way that we think about a data model is it is a consistent interface to the data. So if you're thinking about things in a Kimball style, you know, star schema or snowflake schema, a data model is your fact orders table or your dim customers table or any of the intermediate stages that your data had to pass through in order to produce those eventual data models the data model is like the core unit of work in dbt you know you can also talk about a machine learning model that is a very different thing and there are a lot of people that are annoyed at us that we like picked an overloaded word so but you know the funny thing is you use the words that you use and then like your community grows around them and like we don't get to choose now that like we can't make it called something else. It's like what everybody calls it. So is a data model a table? Is it a set of tables? Yeah. Okay. So how does it map into the warehouse? A data model is a single table in a warehouse, or it's, rather it's zero or one tables in the data warehouse. The DBT can materialize data models in four different ways, or you can specify your own custom materializations. But it can build a table, which gets rebuilt from scratch every time you run DBT, it can build a table that builds itself incrementally it can build a view or it can have what's called an ephemeral model which instead of actually being manifested in the data warehouse at all it is the code from that model is pulled into downstream models as cte's common table expressions so that is a way to define a logical chunk of code that you can test that doesn't need to have any footprint at all inside the data warehouse dbt builds a DAG for you, a directed acyclic graph.
0: Is the DAG connecting different data models to one another?
1: Yeah, DBT has, so like all data processing is, is built around a DAG. You know, you have your source data all the way on the left-hand side and it slowly, as you move from left to right, gets more processed DBT knows about two different types of nodes in that DAG. The first type of node is a data source. So DBT understands, you, know, you configure them in, in a YAML file where your original source data is from. And a lot of times that's from data engineers that that serve the data up. It maybe it's from off-the-shelf tools like Stitch and FiveTran, but you register all of them with DBT. And then you build data models on top of that. And DBT is able to using calls to its ref function, dbt is able to construct the DAG out of all of those nodes. And then it's able to paint a visual representation of that DAG so that you can traverse it visually so that you can like drill in to any of those nodes and inspect what's going on there.
0: So I might have raw data at the beginning of my DAG and then I have one data model that that data is passing through, basically like a set of SQL statements that, or one SQL statement that the raw data is passing through. And then I might have another node in the DAG that is another SQL statement. And the raw data is essentially passing through these different nodes.
1: Yeah, that's a really good way to think about it. You know, when there's lots of prior art in how do you go about transforming data in a warehouse to make it useful? Like people have been doing this since at least the 90s. That's when Kimball and Inman were like writing books about this stuff. You know, when when we started doing this back in 2015, 2016, we actually had not read all of those books, and so we're like trying to figure it all out for ourselves. And it was kind of the wild west. You just like kept building stuff until you got to the answer you wanted, and then you called that done. And so you know, maybe a simple set of transformations was two or three deep. Something more complicated is maybe. 10 or 12 deep. But over time, we've adapted these like standard layers that the data passes through so that like these layers become kind of the internal and external APIs to your data set. So the, the two standard ones that we think about are the staging layer and the MARTS layer. And the, the staging layer is like providing a version of the data that is still at the same level of granularity as the source data but it has had a bunch of cleanup done to it. Maybe there's keys that have been resolved. There's duplication that's been handled. It's like, give me a clean version of the source data. And then at the Mart's layer, you get to do all of the like business logic transformation that makes the eventual data sets map more to the business processes than the source data.
0: I spoke to somebody recently who said that you can think of these... DAGs, these data modeling DAGs, as you can kind of think of them in two, in two ways. So you can either have where, where the nodes are data sources and the edges represent transformations on the data, mm. or you can totally invert that and say the nodes are the transformations and the edges are the actual intermediate data sources. Do you, you agree with that kind of comparison between two different ways you could represent a DAG of data?
1: I understand what you're saying there. It doesn't map onto my brain as being like a super important distinction. That may just be because I'm like too stuck in my own world. Is either of those closer to... We think about the nodes in the graph as both the transformation and the data set. Got it. Because the transformation the code behind the transformation fully describes the data set this goes back to the idempotence and the like terraform nature of dbt right, right, if right, you right. know what the code is then you can like we actually recommend that people blow away their entire like transformed data warehouse periodically and rebuild it from scratch i mean that might not be true when you're dealing with like very large data set sizes but like sometimes for like less mature dbt projects it is actually good to blow them away and rebuild them from scratch because the code fully describes what the data set will look like at the end of it got it
0: the transformations in dbt are reusable across projects this is one of the advantages of using dbt is you know you can leverage the models that other people have built. Mm. You could take them off of GitHub or you can reuse transformations that other people throughout your organization have built. Describe this reusability of data transformations.
1: So this is like I think one of the dumbest things ever is that since before I was born, since like as long back in computing history as like I'm aware of there has been the ability to create libraries and import those libraries into other libraries it's like a fundamental thing to like how you write software code by and large that's not how data analysts have worked you know data scientists certainly like if you're using python or r like that's a standard thing for you but in the sql world there's not been any concept of like a package or an import statement and that's insane. So really one of the first, I mean, back in 2016, when we were like writing the very first versions of dbt, the package manager was one of the very first things that we did. It's very hard to like reverse engineer a package manager into an existing language. I think that there are many good examples of like how that hasn't always gone well. And so that was something that was really important to us from the outset. Our mental model has always been Data analysts should work like software engineers. And and so we needed that capability from the ground up. And yeah, you can internally share code across your organization. And that's mostly relevant like when you're in a particularly large DBT deploy. But also there are more and more like very standardized data sets that people are using. Like if you are using Stitch plus the Stripe API or FiveTran plus the Stripe API, like your data is always going to look the same. And so there's no particular reason why somebody can't publish a set of data models that consume that data and apply standard accounting best practices to it to get to a place where like you're doing monthly recurring revenue reporting. And so that was the original use case for DBT packages. We've built a, a ton of them and we're starting to see the community build build more. Um, my hope over the medium term is that data analysts won't have to start from scratch. Like You get hired at an organization, you spin up an off-the-shelf data stack. Like, you don't start with an empty DBT project. You start with like the best-in-class Stripe transformations and Salesforce and whatever else. You just like start there, and then you start customizing it for your business, because that's what software engineers do. They don't start from scratch. They start with a common set of tools. What does the
0: dbt package manager do?
1: So you publish the Stripe package, let's say. The package manager inside of dbt allows you to reference that package inside of your project and resolve it to a particular release, and then it grabs the code for you at that release and allows you to reference it inside of your project.
0: Got it. So after somebody publishes the dbt Stripe package, I could use that for... Like, I think one example... You can correct me if I'm wrong, but like Stripe, I think it gives you, you know, for your transactions, it gives you just a bunch of JSON like Mm -hmm, for for mm -hmm. each transaction. And you may want to take a subset of those JSON fields and materialize them as a SQL table.
1: That's completely reasonable. That's kind of like a data prep thing you might want to do in a package. A lot of times a product like Stitch or Fivetran will have done that for you already. So the things in this vein... That people find themselves writing within packages are things like so with Stripe, you can charge people monthly or you can charge people annually for like other durations. And as a SaaS business, you always want to be able to report on your monthly recurring revenue. And there are standard ways that you take multi month contracts and split them out over the course of the period of months that represent that, that contract. And so the like modeling required to do that is not like the most complicated thing in the world, but at the same time, it's like reasonably complicated and it's easy to screw up. And so the package, the Stripe package that we published a long time ago actually allows you to do that set of transformations such that you produce this output table that is all of, it is the output table that you need to answer all of the questions in your business about monthly recurring revenue. Mm, nice. Can you give
0: me a hypothetical use case example for how DBT is helpful for an organization and who at the organization would be using it?
1: Yeah, so a lot of our very early adopters were in the direct-to-consumer e-commerce space, and they tend to have fairly large data teams, you know, take a brand that is at scale that maybe has 500 employees at the company, they may have a dozen folks or 15 folks on the the data team, and they're starting to run into the kinds of scalability problems that we were kind of talking about at the beginning of this conversation. And so you take DBT and you drop it into that environment, and all of a sudden, the data analyst's in that team, that the dozen or so of them, they're no longer like this like group of individual vigilantes that are like solving finance or marketing or whatever problems. They're this like cohesive group of people working together to curate the knowledge inside of that company. When you don't have DBT as a data analyst at that organization, you like. Are essentially a service provider to the business units. And, you know, the head of marketing asks a question about customer acquisition costs. And so you sit down at your computer, you write a bunch of SQL, you give the answer back. The other people on your team don't have any way of benefiting from your work. Your work isn't like incorporated into some larger whole. And so that team, because they can all be working together on this dag of data transformations that slowly over time gets more and more sophisticated and better tested, all of a sudden they are involved in each other's work. They're collaborating together. They're reviewing each other's pull requests. It Honestly, the thing that DBT does and that we are involved in as an organization more than anything is like driving behavior change across teams. Like, taking data analysts from low-leveraged lone wolves to high-leveraged like teams that work together.
0: The modern data warehouses, Redshift, Snowflake, BigQuery, perhaps Apache Spark. Mm-hmm. Give me your breakdown for why different companies use different data warehouses.
1: Yeah, okay, let me see how many people I can piss off. Yes. So I have a real soft spot in my heart for Redshift because... Redshift was the first data warehouse in the cloud that you could buy for 160 bucks a month. And so I actually, I own a piece of art called Redshift. I bought it on everything but the house. It was like in an estate sale. And it was like made in the 1970s. And it's hanging in our office. It's called Redshift. I love it. What is it? It's a painting. Of what? It's abstract. It's like squares.
0: Okay. You know, somebody told me that The reason it's called AWS Redshift is because it's people shifting away from Oracle. And Oracle is red. Seriously? That's what somebody told me. Maybe I read it on Wikipedia. I didn't know that. (laughs) I don't think it's true. (laughs) But
1: I heard that. I thought it was hilarious. (laughs) I think it has more to do with some kind of celestial phenomenon. Sure. Sure. Right? Isn't it some kind of I like mean, Redshift is a celestial phenomenon yeah. that I am woefully underqualified to say anything about at all. It's a red square. Yeah, it's like you a see series red of squ- squares. abstract yeah. red squares in yeah. the sky. Yeah, yeah. Just I'll, send send you a, I'll send you a picture. Okay. Yeah. But Amazon had like a phenomenal amount of success with it in the initial years because it was really the only game in town in the cloud. I think that they might have underinvested in the product for a little while and as a result, both BigQuery and Snowflake, they made some architectural improvements, That the primary one being the separation of storage and compute, that really fundamentally change how users can like access this resource. In Redshift, historically, and they've done some work to change this, although I, I don't think that they have caught up, really, Redshift users Always feel storage constrained you just like you want storage to feel abundant and cheap right and on Redshift it just like does not and so the next generation was really snowflake and bigquery both are phenomenal products. I don't know that anybody has public data on like bigquery adoption or anything like that. I think that that's like just inside the big like Google Cloud numbers Very that get mysterious. reported, yeah. Because we get to see DBT usage numbers, we see BigQuery growing a lot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our Snowflake is the most commonly used data warehouse with DBT. And, you know, you can, I don't remember all of the details of the round that Snowflake raised recently, but the company was valued at $12 billion. And so it's very easy to get data points that show just how big this market is and how quickly it's growing. Spark is a little bit less in our world today, because I think that Spark SQL is not the very most, it's, it's not the primary, or at least historically, I don't think it's been the primary focus of the Spark maintainers. I think that's changing. I don't know, I don't have like hard data points there, but I've heard that the SQL interface is an increasing priority for, for those folks. And we are very, you know, very excited to see progress in that area. Do you have any idea how BigQuery compares to Snowflake? I don't have, like, heads-up benchmark information for you. I've read stuff in the past that has essentially, you know, like, at the end of the day, we know certain things as an industry about, like, how to process data efficiently, and my general belief is that, like, probably the people at Snowflake and the people at Google are roughly at the same level of sophistication in terms of like how efficiently can you use compute resources to like process a query so that i don't think that there's like this fundamental difference in how good the warehouses are i think that the real difference is how they present themselves to the user snowflake took the opinion that you want to be able to have direct control over the hardware resources that are processing your your queries So you can say, like throw more hardware at this thing. BigQuery takes the assumption that you don't want to think about that. And it's going to use its query planner to analyze your query and then look at the amount of data that it's going to have to process. And then transparently to you, it's going to make decisions about how much hardware to throw at that. I don't have a reason to believe that either one of those is better than the other. I do think that Snowflake... It presents itself as a little bit more natural of a transition from prior generation technologies because people are used to thinking about like boxes. And BigQuery makes this assumption that it's just going to like handle it for you. And I think that people sometimes feel like they want more control than that. But maybe that's a very outdated way of thinking about the world, and maybe Google does know best. I honestly don't have a strong opinion there.
0: Fishtown Analytics, your company started as a consultancy. Mm. Now I believe you have a cloud product, which Mm -hmm. is the main focus in terms of a business. What's the cloud product do?
1: Yeah, we still do consulting on top of dbt in the same way that like most companies that run open source projects do. We help companies implement it and train and run conferences and things like that. But the cloud product certainly is a, is a big focus for us. So dbt is split into two primary code bases today, dbt-core and dbt-cloud. Core is Apache 2. Use it, do whatever you want. That provides the core templating functionality. It provides a command line interface. It provides a server to respond to requests. And it provides all of the functionality to connect to databases and run that SQL. It does not ship with anything Stateful. DBT itself is stateless. It doesn't ship with a user interface. It doesn't ship with a scheduler. There's no way to log into it. So, DBT Cloud provides this management and user interface layer on top of Core that gives analysts an experience that more closely matches the way that they want to interface with software. We collect telemetry on both products, and as far as we're able to see, about a third of the DBT core user population uses cloud. That's a good sign. Yeah. I mean, it's also, like, they're cheap. And there, there is a, like, free forever plan as well. So we make it super easy. We want anybody who finds the management layer useful to be able to use it.
0: When AWS inevitably builds AWS DBT, the six-letter acronym,
1: <laughs> what are you going to do? Yeah. So they don't have to build it because they can just use ours they you know Amazon is in particular known for implementing large open source projects internally and I don't think that we're really like the community is like quite at the size to like get their notice quite yet but I think that you know the way that things are growing for us like that's not a crazy thing to think could happen. The thing that we care about for core is the widest possible adoption we care about this, like affecting this change in the world that we want to see. And if that means that AWS gets involved in like AWS or any of the other like hyperscale cloud providers gets involved in DBT in some way, or even like gets involved in pushing people towards this way of thinking about the world, that's a win for us. The way that we monetize is Not with DBT core, it's with the management layer on top of that. And by and large, AWS is not in the business of building user interfaces. And they're also not in the business of building software for data analysts. They primarily sell to software engineers. So we're not, you know, if we were selling a back-end piece of technology like Elastic or, you know, something in that category, I think we would think about this problem a little bit differently. But like ultimately we are charging money for a user experience.
0: Right. Yeah. Cause there's just not that much data to store. It's like a No, we store literally just, just the query. zero data. Oh you don't even store any data.
1: Well I mean we like have a Postgres database that stores like users and logs of run results. But like the data warehouse stores the data.
0: Right. Got it. What about the user's queries? Those don't get stored in or cached or anything?
1: Not today. Today, all of a user's code is stored in their Git repo and in the same way that like Circle CI would connect to your Git repo right. and you know, execute the code as a part of a job, DBT Cloud does the same thing. And then it stores logs of the runs. Got it. And you know, can be configured to store those logs in your S3 bucket. So, you know, the the way that the product is designed already has a like low footprint in yeah. in your data center, but we're hyper focused on giving people the control that they need to be able to manage that stuff. Like we ultimately don't want to be the custodian of your data if if you don't want us to be.
0: That's smart. And I think that's a smart way to compete. I think that's how we're going to see more and more of these open source companies compete. Just compete on the UI layer. Yep. Compete on the developer experience layer. Amazon's got some skeleton crew working on their AWS version of your product. Sure. They're all doing infrastructure stuff. None of them are designers or, you know, whatever. You can out-execute them on design.
1: Yeah. Since I mentioned that before, can I give a plug to... Yeah. Have you talked to anybody... On the show from Replicated, yeah, twice. We love their product. We would not be All able right. to. Right, shout out. They're a sponsor. Yeah. Wow. Oh wow. Uh, we, we would <laughs> not be able to. That's some great. Un... <laughs> I legitimately did not know that.
0: Non-sponsored content. We use I'm Rep... handing Tristan a thousand dollar bill right now.
1: <laughs> we use Replicated to deploy on prem to customers' clouds. And beautiful, beautiful. Like, shout legitimately, out. would not be able to do that without that product. Like that would be out of our reach as a small organization.
0: Nice. I bet you'll get a discount on your next enterprise contract. <laughs> all right. We're wrapping up. How do data pipelines look different in five years?
1: Oh geez. I think that they're they're better documented, they're better tested, they're more end-to-end. I think that like the pipeline will be understood all the way up to the interface with the user, as opposed to just like being the stuff that happens in the compute layer. Like it will extend to the BI layer as well, because one of the biggest, you know, support burdens of the data analyst team is users saying like, why is my dashboard broken? And the answer is like, well, some transformation upstream broke and like the data is not current. And so you really need that DAG to like extend all the way to the user. They will be more real timey. There's work happening in that space from the the Druid folks that imply There's work happening. There's a a new company that just publicly launched, like two weeks ago. Materialize. Sure. They like another recent guest. Oh, is that right? Yeah. The thing that I'm interested in with both of those products is that they think of SQL as a first-class API for a streaming platform, which and like full ANSI SQL support, including joins. Like historically. Joins have been the big problem for any streaming platform that Mm. says it has a SQL interface. And, you know, any data analyst will tell you that, like, if you can't give me joins, I'm like, it's like not that useful. So I think that you're going to see the data stack and data pipelines, because they get more real timey, they get used in workloads that are not just analytics focused, they are also operational. I think that we are using analytics to kind of bootstrap the like data infrastructure for the entire company because it has lower latency or like less restrictive latency requirements. But as the latency gets better, you'll see operational use cases happen, which are going to put SQL in the center of like running the operations for an entire business.
0: Great way to close off. Tristan, thanks for coming on the show. Great talking.
1: Thank you. It was a lot of fun.